The Office of Management and Budget is in the process of putting some much-needed direction and guidance in place for how agencies should use and manage artificial intelligence. OMB is laying out about 10 requirements in new draft guidance, parts of which Federal News Network has obtained. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me now with a scoop of what agencies should expect in the coming weeks. And Jason, I'm presuming you're the one that obtained those documents. I did, Tom. I will admit I have sources in high and low places all over the government. Yes, you do. And I admire you for it. So what is OMB going to lay out here? This is a 25-page draft memo. So let me reiterate draft so things could change. The OMB did request feedback from uh, CIOs, CIO counsel, uh, small agencies, and others about about what's in the memo, and then they will uh, continue to refine this memo. In fact, Tom, I had heard from a previous uh, memo was almost 67 pages long at one point. So obviously they're 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 shrinking it down and really focusing on certain areas. And those areas, again, 10 requirements agencies potentially will have in the coming year or so to meet to really improve how they manage and use artificial intelligence. And I think, Tom, this is coming from the rise in AI, excitement over, okay, how can AI impact agencies' mission? And then also the White House, they've had a executive orders about trustworthy AI. You've seen AI councils pop up across government. You've seen communities of interest. This is the hottest buzz item since, Tom, I would say zero trust was last year. Now, among those 10 requirements, and we'll go, we won't go we will go through them all, but you can see them in my story. For instance, agencies need to name new chief AI officer. So we get another CXO to the bunch. They will have to publicly release an AI strategy. They will have to convene an AI governance board. They will have to talk about what is innovative and responsible AI. One of the interesting things that, Tom, really came out to me was not just this idea of responsible AI, but they want agencies to start looking at safety impacting or rights impacting AI. And one of the examples they gave is, for instance, voting. Like how can AI impact voting machines or voting systems or in the regulatory world like food and drug safety or even nuclear power? What are safety impacting or rights impacting AI? And I thought that was something that was really interesting in, in the memo. And we should point out that the Homeland Security Department is the latest of the agencies to push out an announcement of a newly named AI chief. Justin Doubleday has that story in the next hour. And getting to this issue of generative AI, and I think that's what's put AI on the radar for the average person. Does the memo address that particular branch of AI, Jason? It does. And I think it's really important that OMB is taking a very risk management but active approach. So first of all, the memo says OMB is encouraging agencies to promote innovation and is guarding against and discouraging the use of generative AI. And let's be clear, the memo doesn't specifically call out this tool, ChatGPT, but it does talk about generative AI. Now, they would require agencies to take adequate risk mitigation procedures in place, ensure agencies have access to tools, but it really does discourage agencies from blocking or banning generative AI. And I think this is important because what we've seen over the, over the summer, Tom, was a couple agencies were putting the brakes on their, their employees' use of generative AI, GSA and EPA to name two, while other agencies such as the HHS Administrator for Children and Families said, you should use it, but put some guardrails around it and make, make sure you're, you're making good decisions when you do use it. So again, I think that's really an important piece to say, hey, we're not going to tell you you can't use it. We just want you to be smart about how you are using it. And, and that's a key piece to the memo. You've got to pick the right application for it, and then you have to pick the right data for It's not the same as putting out a tool for the general public to throw millions and millions of pieces of nonsense at it so that it descends into nonsense. You just have to control it, I think, is the main thing here. Jason, among those sources you mentioned earlier throughout the government, you checked around some federal executives and got some reaction to what the 
OMB has laid out here. I did, and I think generally speaking, the federal executives, both current ones and former ones, thought the memo was pretty good. They thought the memo had a lot of really important things in there, and and, and the foundation of what agencies have been doing over the last year, like Tom, you mentioned Justin's story coming up about the chief AI officer at DHS. Again, this memo is not out yet. DHS is already naming one. We've seen chief AI officers at HHS, and we've seen chief AI officers at DOD. And also Veterans Affairs. And Veterans Affairs has someone who's leading that effort. You're seeing a lot of what agencies have been doing in this memo now getting really codified in a way that gives them a little more oomph. Maybe they need a push. Maybe they need to bring that memo to a deputy secretary and say, look, no, we, we are supposed to be doing this. This is not just a nice to have but a really a must-have. And I think the other thing the memo's doing that I've been told is, listen, it's really focused on good transparency and good policy that I think a lot of agencies may be needing, especially smaller agencies who say, well, we're kind of using AI, like robotics process automation or some analytics, but really how much deeper can we go? And having this memo gives them that ability to go, okay, here's the guardrails we can stay in between to start using, taking more advantage of, of AI. The, the other piece, Tom, I, I just offer about feedback is there's always concern about funding with any memo that comes from OMB with anything that comes from Congress, how am I going to pay for this? So some things don't cost a lot of money, a strategy, a chief AI officer, those things are, if you will, neutral in terms of cost. But there are things, you know, publishing use cases, understanding innovation, trying pilots out, paying for those pilots, getting contractors in place to, to help with those things, training your workforce, that all requires money. We know Congress, we may get a shutdown soon, Tom, we may get a CR soon. We also know that Congress is not opening the purse like they had been previously. So I think all of that is, is concerning. I think that's the one big thing that stood out is like, how are you going to pay? for it, some of these new requirements. And then, Tom, real quick, the other thing folks mentioned to me was the memo really doesn't go into data and data sources. AI as a tool is great, but if the data is bad or if agencies aren't working toward improving their data or combining data sources, then the AI tools, no matter how great they are, really will not be as effective. And I think that's the other thing the memo should go deeper into, according to the sources I've talked to. Hey, how do agencies improve their data collection, their data management? And that's the role the chief data officer can play. And to the memo's credit, it does call out, hey, this new chief AI officer should work closely with the CFO around budgeting and resources. It should work closely with the chief human capital officer around training of the workforce. And I'm sure that there's some comments in there about the CDO and the CIO. And of course, it's well-timed because all of the hearings on Capitol Hill about artificial intelligence, and you had that group traipsing to the White House the other day talking about artificial intelligence and the safe use of it. So I think the White House wants to be ahead of the curve on this because who knows what's going to come out of Congress. Now you have seen parts of the memo, any sense of the timeline of when the OMB is actually going to publish the memo. We know that they already sent this out to draft comments to agencies at least twice, so they're probably taking that feedback. What I've been told from sources is they will put this out for public comment through the Federal Register, almost like an RFI, Tom. Hey, here's our draft memo. What do you think out there? Send in your comments. And I think that should be happening in the next two to three, maybe four weeks, I'm told. With OMB, you never know, Tom. It could be four weeks. could actually mean eight weeks. So we'll have to kind of keep an eye out for it. But I think they probably want to have this in place sooner than later. Again, a lot of agencies are pressing forward with a lot of these things that the memo calls for. And I think having this memo in place, this guidance in place will help agencies move faster and also take care of any of the stragglers or people who maybe are doubtful that AI can have an impact. But I would say the next step is to look for the public comment period. And I give OMB a lot of credit, federal CIO Claire Martirana and others. They have promised in, in many ways to put a lot of these memos out for public comment because they realize that they don't have all the answers. At the same time, I'll give you just a, the opposite. I've been told the 
21st Century Idea Act, another memo that's coming soon unrelated to AI, may not be going out for public comment. And that's a concern that I've heard as well. So we'll have to see how this all plays out. But but again, kudos to them for at least sure. planning to put this out for public comment. I smell a chief artificial intelligence officer's counsel coming in the future. Oh, they do call for that, by the way, in the memo. So good call, Tom. I've been around too long. I guess they could call it the artificial intelligence community. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And make sure you check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work. And I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, 
the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself, and in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence, because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles. I think so, because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust but your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, What's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, I certainly had some skills, I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. 
Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, 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 I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. that You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. 
What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.